Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fans first, Sports Network listeners, welcome to episode five of The Call Sheet, the post-draft edition where we get to go through all the madness that just went down as the NFL finished up with it's uh, the greatest non-sporting sporting event in America. What, what other sport could draw 11 million viewers to watch it not actually participate in the sport that it claims to be, right? We had 11 million viewers on Thursday night watch the first round of the NFL draft in which there was no actual football being played. Amazing, the hold on America that football has. I'm your host, Kevin Smith. You can follow me on Twitter at KTSmithFFSN, contributor to the NFL platform here at Fans First and to the Steel Curtain Network, and I am the proud head coach of a high school football program in New Jersey, the Ocean City Red Raiders. And I'm really happy to have the opportunity to share my love of football and some of what I've learned and the passion that we all have for this game with all of you. So today on the show, obviously, we're going to look back at the NFL draft, but specifically, we're going to look at which teams in each division had the most interesting draft. And I I say interesting, we're not looking at the best or the worst necessarily, but the ones that stood out for their approach or for the players they selected, or for what the draft says about the direction their franchise is headed, I'm going to pick one team from each NFL division and weigh in on the draft and, again, talk about what teams I thought were really interesting in how they conducted themselves over the weekend. All right, we're going to start with the NFC and the NFC East in particular. You know, I liked what the New York Giants did, just from a a personnel standpoint. I think that Deontay Banks is a tough corner who's got the right mindset to play in New York. I think he's mentally and physically tough, and that's going to fit him well in New York. And I like the wide out from Tennessee. They took Jalen Hyatt. I think he could be a huge addition to their offense. But come on, man. If we're talking about the most interesting team in the NFC East, it's the Philadelphia Eagles. The Eagles continue to really impress with their approach. Talk about a team who knows who they are. First and foremost, They have a love affair with Georgia Bulldogs defenders. They selected three more of them, tackle Jalen Carter, edge rusher Nolan Smith, and quarter Keely Ringo. That makes five Georgia defenders in the last two drafts for the Eagles. It's the first time in the common draft era that an NFL team has selected five players from a single school over a two-year period as Carter, Smith, and Ringo join 
Jordan Davis and Nicobe Dean from last year's draft. So, so why not? Why wouldn't you if you're Philadelphia? Georgia's loaded with pro talent, especially on defense. They're, the dogs were the most dominant defense in college football the past two years, and they've had an astounding 25 players drafted. That's an entire football team worth of players drafted the last two seasons, starters anyway. Philadelphia's been picking these Georgia defenders. That's really interesting, right? In Davis and Carter, they've opted for these big physical interior defenders in back-to-back drafts. You know, Philly already has one of the best defensive fronts in football, but they lost Javon Hargrave this offseason in free agency. Fletcher Cox is getting near the end of his great career. So it's obvious the Eagles intend to remain great up front. They've built their team from the inside out on both sides of the ball. The offensive line was a dominant unit in their Super Bowl run last season. Interestingly, the O-line contains five homegrown starters. That's right. Every starter on Philly's O-line was drafted by the Eagles. And guess what? So is every starter on the defensive line. They are in an entirely homegrown unit up front on both sides of the ball. And it's a huge reason for their success. Philly has a formula they believe in. Control the line of scrimmage and build out from there. And they're sticking to it. And they're bringing in defenders from college football's most elite program to do it. I love their strategy. All right, let's move to the NFC North. The theme of this podcast is the team who had the most interesting draft. Not necessarily the best, but the most interesting. And for me, that, hands down, is the Detroit Lions. If we learn one thing about the Lions over the weekend, it's this. They don't care what you think of their draft board. Running back Jamar Gibbs was rated as a second or maybe even third round pick, and the Lions took him 12th overall. Linebacker Jack Campbell was projected to go in the middle to late second round, and Detroit grabbed him with the 18th overall pick. You know, (laughs) the screaming about value was epic. Ah, Detroit got poor value with those picks. They could have taken both players later. There were better players to be taken in those draft spots, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all that's great in theory. And I I get it. I get those arguments theoretically. But in rebuttal, a couple of thoughts. One, how how do we really assess value, right? If Gibbs and or Campbell go on to become quality starters for Detroit, isn't that good value no matter where you took them? The Lions obviously like how both players fit their scheme. They have plans for each. For example, On offense, they appear to be prioritizing speed. They drafted Jamison Williams last year. They grabbed an athletic tight end, Sam Laporta, in round two this year when they could have had a bigger guy or maybe a a more high-profile guy like Michael Mayer or Darnell Washington. Gibbs certainly provides speed, and Laporta is going to be able to stretch the seam. They have roles in Detroit. On defense, they want physicality. Campbell's probably the most physical linebacker in the draft. Both of those players fit what Detroit's looking for. You know, as for the argument they could have gotten each one of them later in the draft, I, I don't know how people make that claim with a straight face. How, how does anyone know what anyone else's intentions really are in the draft? I mean, granted, no team seemed poised to jump up and grab Gibbs anytime soon after Detroit picked. But you just don't know how things are going to unfold. If you really want a player, you can gamble and wait, or you can be aggressive and go get them. The Lions took the aggressive route. I don't have any problem with that. As for the NFC South, the Atlanta Falcons are another team who kind of spurred conventional wisdom by selecting a running back high. 
The Falcons took Texas star Bijan Robinson with the eighth overall pick. You know, Robinson is an absolute stud, a unanimous All-American in 2022, the Doak Walker winner as the nation's best running back, a guy who had 18 touchdowns and almost 1,600 rushing yards, and who simply, he looks like a feature NFL back, right? So what's the problem? The problem is that it's now frowned upon to spend a high draft pick on a running back. I am old enough to remember when running backs were league MVPs and routinely drafted in the top 10. Let me offer quick apologies to SCN's Dave Schofield. But Dave, I'm going to borrow your Stat Geek moniker for a second. Let me go Stat Geek real quick on everybody. From 1977 to 1999, that's a span of 23 drafts. There were 34 running backs taken in the top 10 of round one. 34 in 23 seasons. Okay. Now we're into this century. From 2000 to 2023, that's 24 drafts there were 17 running backs taken in the top 10, half the number. The conventional wisdom now says you can find running backs later in the draft and they're not worth spending a high draft pick on because they have a short shelf life and quarterbacks and offensive linemen, wide receivers, DBs, et cetera, will all hold up longer. You'll get more for your money in the long run, drafting another position higher. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, but what if that running back is really good, right? Like Christian McCaffrey good. I mean, McCaffrey was the eighth overall pick in 2017. He's certainly been worth it. He's a prototypical modern running back. He's a guy who can run. He can catch. He can block. He can move around the formation. He fits the 49ers scheme phenomenally now that he's been traded there. Or or what about Zeke Elliott, right? Elliott went number four in 2016. He's got over 8,000 yards rushing in seven seasons. I mean, that's production totally on par with his draft slot. Saquon Barkley met number two overall in 2018. He's got over 6,000 yards from scrimmage in five seasons. Some injury issues with Barkley. Maybe some people could say, hey, Barkley or Elliott haven't lived up to expectation. Again, it's hard to say that either one's a disappointment when you look at other players drafted in that range, especially the number two pick. Consider some of the other players picked at number two in recent years. Zach Wilson, Mitchell Trubisky, Carson Wentz, Marcus Mariota. The least productive top 10 running back in the past decade has probably been Leonard Fournette. And Fournette, he's got 2,000-yard seasons and a Super Bowl ring on his resume. Clearly, Fournette, the least productive running back in the top 10 over the last decade, has had a better NFL career than any of those quarterbacks I just named. Wilson, Trubisky, Wentz, Mariota. If Fournette's the worst of the bunch, it's a damn good bunch. You know, So why not take a running back if you believe he fits your scheme? I mean, B. John Robinson certainly fits what Atlanta's trying to do. The Falcons had the third most rushing yards in the NFL last year, and that was without a premium talent at running back. I mean, you might hear that statement and say, well, that proves the point. Atlanta ran the ball well without a marquee running back. Or you can approach it the way a team like Philadelphia might by saying, this is a strength of ours. Let's double down on it and make it stronger by adding a premium talent. So, Add Robinson to last year's breakout backfield star, fifth-round pick Tyler Aguilar. And that's going to give Atlanta a great one-two punch at running back and plenty of support for their young quarterback, Desmond Ritter. The Falcons, you know, they then went on in the draft and they grabbed interior lineman Matthew Bergeron in round two, which is going to bolster an already impressive O-line. That includes guys like Jake Matthews and Chris Lidstrom and Callum McGarry 
I mean, Atlanta's going to run the ball. They're going to move the pocket with the athletic Ritter. They're going to get the ball in the passing game to their talented young playmakers, Kyle Pitts, Drake London. They've got an identity on offense, and they're not afraid to double down in the draft, and I really like that. All right, final one, the NFC West. That brings us to the Seattle Seahawks, who I think were clearly the most interesting team in the West. They used day one by getting the best corner, the best corner in, in the draft, Devin Witherspoon of Illinois, and the best wide receiver, Jackson Smith, the Jigba of Ohio State. The JSN pick is going to cause havoc, I think, on opposing secondaries. He is so talented in the slot. He's such a good route runner. With DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett outside, JSN is going to draw a steady dot of nickel defenders and box safeties against which to operate. The middle of the field, man, that can be a quarterback's best friend. So give Geno Smith a weapon like JSN, and it's likely to lead to another nice season in the veteran quarterback's improbable comeback. The thing is, it's one thing to pick good players in the draft, but it's another to know how to use them. And one thing I've always liked about Seattle is how well they seem to find players to fit what they want to do. Let's think about Seattle's recent history, right? From 2012 to 2021. Over a 10-year span, Seattle went 105-55-1 with two Super Bowl appearances and a Super Bowl title. Nine playoff berths in 10 years over that run. It was a great run. They had a winning quarterback in Russell Wilson. They had a dynamic coach in Pete Carroll. They just had a way about them. They had a swagger. They had a culture. They had an identity. They had a great fan base. They knew how to pick players and how to fit them into their system. A model franchise. And then in 2021, things kind of went bad. They went 7-10, and 10, which was their only losing season over that span. The divorce with Wilson wasn't exactly pretty. And they had to start over last year with a journeyman in Geno Smith at quarterback who nobody took real seriously. They turned out over their whole roster from that long stretch of playoff success, and they still made the playoffs. I mean, what a great job by Pete Carroll, John Schneider, and all those guys. So, you know, when I think about Seattle's draft and the talent that they landed in round one, I just can't help but think that even though there's probably a shelf life in this Geno Smith feel-good story and Seattle doesn't really have an answer for what's next at quarterback, they're going to remain relevant because they're an organization that makes it so. And in Witherspoon and Smith Najigma, they just added two premium talents that will help in that process. Okay, that's the NFC. Those are the four teams I'm most interested in the NFC. Let's take a quick break. On the other side, the most interesting drafts from the AFC by division. And then at the very end, I'm going to give you my single favorite selection from the entire draft. So stick around for that. Come on back after the break. Welcome back to the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you at KT Smith FFSN for all you Twitterers out there. Before the break, we were looking at teams who had the most interesting drafts by division in the NFC. And on this side, we're going to examine the AFC, which if I could diverge from the topic for just a second, is clearly the superior of the two conferences right now, especially in terms of its quarterback play. 
So as a promo for my own show here, if I may, if you may indulge me, this is going to be the topic of an upcoming episode of the call sheet, looking at that quarterback disparity among the two conferences and how winning the AFC next season could largely come down to figuring out how to defend some of those elite signal callers. So look for that episode coming soon. For now, though, the most interesting drafts in the AFC. So let's start in the East where the Miami Dolphins, since the theme of this show is interesting drafts, are a source of fascination for me these days. And it really starts with their head coach, Mike McDaniel, who who is unconventional to say the least. I've been coaching for nearly 30 years. I've been around a lot of coaches from high school to the pros. And one thing I can say about coaches in general is that it's an alpha-driven world. Coaches are uber-competitive. Many of them are eager to be the smartest guy in the room, especially if you put them on a whiteboard. They're an outwardly tough and demanding group of people, and they're careful not to let their guard down. A lot of football coaches think that any moment where they leave their football persona, where they go outside of their football coach persona, is a potential weakness and can be used against them by their opponents in some way. So they are largely buttoned up and stoic and on brand, if we can put it that way, but not Mike McDaniel. I was brainstorming the following with some of my friends the other day, Mike McDaniel looks like blank. And here were some of the entries that they texted back to me. Mike McDaniel looks like a wedding DJ. Mike McDaniel looks like a hipster valet And then my favorite, Mike McDaniel looks like a rejected cast member from the TV show Silicon Valley. I I love that one. But what Mike McDaniel does not look like is a traditional NFL football coaches. And here's the thing. Who cares? Who cares? He's a brilliant guy. He went to Yale. And the fact that he doesn't look or sound like a typical coach is something he uses to his advantage. Mike McDaniel appears to embrace the fact that he's different. And it's really allowed him to take a different approach. He's not a guy who feels that he has to look or sound a certain way. And he's not pretending to be anything other than himself. You know, being genuine really resonates with players. They can smell a fake from miles away. And McDaniel's ability to be genuine is a major factor in his rise to the top of the coaching profession and in the relationship he's built with his players. So in Miami, McDaniel, the coach, has embraced the modern game by turning the Dolphins into a track team in cleats. Their core on offense, Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddell, Robbie Anderson now, Raheem Mostert, they're all sub-4440 guys. And on defense, it's more of the same. Jalen Ramsey, David Long, Javon Holland, Jerome Baker, those are all guys who can run. I mean, Xavier Howard might not be the fastest guy in the league, but his acceleration to the ball and his ability to close is elite. Even Christian Wilkins, their 310-pound defensive tackle, even he can move. So McDaniel didn't draft all those guys, understood, but he values what they bring to the table, and that is speed. So it's no surprise then that the Dolphins stuck to this philosophy in the draft. They didn't have a first-round pick, so their initial selection came in round two, where they grabbed one of the best cover corners in South Carolina's Cam Smith. Smith has excellent foot speed. He's got really fluid hips. He's very attractive for his versatility. He's going to be able to play field corner, boundary corner. He could play in the slot. So Vic Fangio, who runs a zone-based system, is going to be able to really move Smith all over the place. Then in round three, the Dolphins selected a burner at running back in Texas A&M's Devin Akane, 
who ran the 4-3-2, or the 40, I should say, in 4-3-2, uh, and is likely going to see reps as a rotational runner and in the slot right away. And, you know, I like the idea of, pair, of pairing a cane in the backfield with Mostert, and then you have Hill and Waddle outside, shifting, motioning the heck out of guys to create the best possible matchups. There's so much speed there. And inevitably, there's going to be a nickel corner or an outside linebacker somewhere on the defense who McDaniel's going to be able to get matched up against one of these burners. And that's going to be a win for Miami. So the Dolphins had only four selections in the draft, and they didn't waste them, especially at the top. Their first two picks will fit well with the team McDaniels is building. Next up, the AFC North. All right. The team that had the best draft in the division was the Pittsburgh Steelers, but I'm not going to talk about the Steelers. If you've listened to this podcast before, or if you caught me on either of the FFSN draft recap shows I did with Jeff Hartman last weekend, you know I'm a Steelers fan. And I don't want to be accused of homerism, even though it is hard to deny that the Steelers had the best draft. But again, this show is about the most interesting draft, not necessarily the best. So let's talk about the Cincinnati Bengals. The fear I had and that many of my friends had over at the Steel Curtain Network was that there'd still be an elite tight end on the board when Cincinnati was on the clock for their selection near the end of round one. The Bengals lost Hayden Hurst, their starting tight end from last season in free agency, and they signed Irv Smith to be their starter, at least on paper, Uh, signed Smith from Minnesota, where last year he caught just 25 passes, missed half the year with injury. I don't think the Bengals are comfortable, or at least it didn't seem anyway, with Smith going in as their number one, and we all figured they'd pick a tight end high in the draft. So there they were at 28, ready to pick, and the board was still pretty stacked. I mean, Buffalo had chosen Dalton Kincaid, a really nice player, a few picks earlier, but the consensus best tight end overall Notre Dame's Michael Mayer was still available, and so was Georgia's massive Darnell Washington, a player I pegged as an ideal draft target for the Bengals on this show just a few weeks ago. As a Steelers fan, the notion of Cincinnati giving Joe Burrow a target like Washington or an all-around player like Mayer to pair with their embarrassment of riches at wide receiver, to be honest, I thought that thought sucked. I, I hated that idea. But to my shock, and I got to say pleasant surprise, the Bengals didn't go tight end in round one. They picked Clemson edge rusher Miles Murphy instead. And Murphy's a darn good football player who was projected in many mocks to be long gone by the time the Bengals picked. And the pick makes total sense. They got a highly rated player who wasn't expected to be there at a position of need. Cincinnati was 29th in the NFL last season in sacks. And like we said earlier, the AFC is loaded with quarterbacks. So getting after the QB is a big deal. And Murphy had 18 and a half sacks in his career at Clemson. So that's obviously something he does well. So the Bengals philosophy here was interesting. We talked in the first part of the show about how teams like Philly and Atlanta doubled down in the draft by picking players who would accentuate areas where they're already strong. Since he had the chance to do the same thing by picking a highly rated tight end and further stocking their offensive arsenal for Joe Burrow. You know, picking the tight end would have essentially been an admission that the Bengals were simply going to try to outscore teams. But that's not what they did. Instead, they decided on the draft's other common philosophy, probably its most common philosophy, which is to fortify an area of weakness. They had a poor pass rush. Murphy was an accomplished pass rusher. There you go. 
Not only did Cincy address their defense in round one, but they did it in rounds two and three. Also, picking defensive backs DJ Turner from Michigan and Jordan Battle from Alabama. They did add a couple of receivers later, including Andre Iosivis from Princeton, who I thought was a really interesting sleeper pick. And he fits the mold that Cincinnati has of big, long receivers with speed. And, you know, Iosivis was an All-American heptathlete at Princeton, which is pretty cool. He could be a nice addition to the receiving core. But make no, no mistake about it. For Cincinnati, this was a draft with an eye towards stopping Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, and perhaps Jalen Hurts should the Bengals get back to the Super Bowl. Okay, to the AFC South. Let's talk about the Titans. Tennessee had a really interesting draft. They moved to upgrade their offensive line in round one by taking Peter Skaronsky, the the highly rated tackle, or maybe he'll be a guard. A lot of people think he'll be a guard from Northwestern. And it made sense. You know, they averaged the fourth fewest yards before contact in the run game last season, which means they weren't getting much of a push. And that Derrick Henry was getting hit early and often and had to rely a lot on his tackle-breaking ability to make yards. And Skaronsky should definitely help in that department. It was in round two, though, that the Titans really made their interesting move when they traded with the Cardinals to jump up to nearly the top of the round to take Will Levis, the quarterback from Kentucky, who fell out of round one after speculation from just about a week ago that he could be the top overall pick. You know, the the Twitterverse went nuts when a rumor circulated on the Monday before the draft that Levis was going to be Carolina's choice. He went from a 40 and one odds to be the top pick all the way up to four to one. And then he had to sit there through the entire first round in the green room as his name was never called. I mean, honestly, it sucked to watch it. And yet it's all a part of what makes the draft so compelling. So Levis is interesting. He's a polarizing figure. Some people love him and they suggest He's a prototypical modern NFL quarterback. He's big and he's strong. He's got a cannon of an arm. He can move. He's got some swag in him. I mean, I've heard some people say that maybe he's going to be a poor man's Josh Allen. Other people say that that swag really crosses the line from confidence into like Baker Mayfield annoying everyone around him or that he has just average passing instincts and that the 23 interceptions he threw the past two seasons at Kentucky is a huge red flag in terms of his decision-making. And the thing for the Titans, the thing that makes this so interesting is that they're not going to know which one they have until Levis takes the field. And when he does, there will be this fascinating question. Will he be closer to Allen? or closer to Malik Willis, who was last year's big quarterback investment for the Titans, who was so overmatched by the pro game that he seems like he could be on his way out of Tennessee after just one year. It's a big gamble. Uh, And it's one Tennessee was willing to make because Ryan Tannehill, dependable as he's been for the past several years, is now 35 years old. And it doesn't look like he's taking Tennessee to the Super Bowl anytime soon. And side note, I always, I still think of Ryan Tannehill as a young quarterback. And the fact he's 35 just kind of blows me away. So the Titans need an answer for what's next. 
and they're hoping that Levis is it. And honestly, I don't know if he is or not, but I, I will say this. I did like how Levis competed against the big dogs in the SEC with a roster at Kentucky of inferior talent. When you're always competing against teams that are better, it's really a test of your character. Some players grow frustrated with it. You know, they start throwing teammates under the bus. They make it all about themselves, et cetera. But others dig in and go harder. And Levis really seems to have fit that second category. So while he may be cocky and he may put mayonnaise in his coffee, which is quite honestly one of the most disgusting things I've ever heard of, he's also likely to be a great competitor. And that should work in Tennessee's favor. On a different note, Tennessee ignored the wide receiver position in the draft until round seven. And that was totally perplexing. I don't get that at all. The Titans spent a number one pick at the position last year on Traylon Burks, who I really like, but they're going to need him to be their top guy in 2023. And that's asking a lot. I, mean, I think Burks is a, is more like a Debo Samuel than a Justin Jefferson prototypical number one. And he's best when he's being used as a Swiss army knife. And when he has a good supporting cast around him, but Tennessee emerges from the draft with a bunch of guys you've never heard of around Burks. They spent their third round pick on a backup running back when there were still some pretty good wide receivers on the board, as well as Washington, the mammoth tight end, who would have looked good in Tennessee's offense. I'm not questioning the Levis pick. I get why Tennessee did it. But whether it's Levis, Tannehill, Willis, whoever, at quarterback, they need help on the outside. And they don't really have it. All right, finally to the AFC West, where our focus is on the Las Vegas Raiders. So the Raiders had, again, interesting, had an interesting draft. At number seven overall, they took Tyree Wilson, the edge rusher, who without question had the best suit of anybody in the green room, no doubt about that, and also bear hugged and picked up Roger Goodell like he was going to WWE slam him. The book on Wilson, right? Raw, loaded with potential. The thing that really works in his favor is he's going to have Chandler Jones and Max Crosby to learn the art of pass rushing from. And that's great. There seems to be some boomer bust potential about Wilson. There were safer picks on the board and in the division with Mahomes and Russell Wilson and Justin Herbert with Christian Gonzalez there. It would have been totally understandable if the Raiders went for the corner, but rushing the passer in that division is important too. So the gamble on Wilson makes sense. Another pick that made sense was, was Mayer, the tight end from Notre Dame, who they took in round two to replace the departed Darren Waller makes total sense. And for old school Raiders fans, I got a text from a friend of mine from childhood who was a huge Raiders fan way back in the day. And his text said, Michael Mayer goes to the post question mark, Dave Casper. If anybody remembers Dave Casper, the old Raiders tight end who, who has a lot of similarities to Mayer. Neither one was the best athlete on the field. Neither one was the greatest at one specific thing. But like Casper, Mayer is good at everything, and he's a gamer, and he's a guy I think Raiders fans will love. But the real reason I'm talking about the Raiders is this. In round five, they took Aiden O'Connell, the quarterback from Purdue. So Josh McDaniels, who spent 18 years with the New England Patriots and was there for just about all of Tom Brady's time in New England, goes out and gets a fifth-round pick from a Big Ten school. And the book on O'Connell reads like this. He's largely immobile, doesn't move well, but he's smart. He reads defense as well. He's accurate and he gets the ball out quickly. So a big 10 quarterback taken late in the draft, 
who lacks mobility, smart, accurate, quick release. Hmm. Who does that sound like? And taken by a New England Patriot guy, right? So, okay. Hyperbole alert. I get it. But I'm just saying, man, 20 years from now, when Aiden O'Connell has won seven Super Bowls, I just be like, hey, man, I heard that on the call sheet. No, I don't, in all seriousness, think that O'Connell's going to be that, but I like that pick as a guy who maybe McDaniels can develop and turn into something. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up with that, but I promised you before the break to leave us with my overall favorite pick in the entire draft. And I mentioned that I was not going to talk about the Steelers because of the accusation that could inevitably come of homerism, but darn it, I have to talk about the Steelers because my favorite overall pick in the entire draft was Darnell Washington to the Pittsburgh Steelers with pick number 93. Darnell Washington, an absolute freak of an athlete at 6'7", and almost 270 pounds, with a mammoth catch radius, the mentality of a lineman. He sees himself as a glorified offensive lineman, a guy who is going to give Kenny Pickett a tremendous target in the middle of the field, who gives offense coordinator Matt Canada some of the flexibility that he's been looking for to run multiple tight end sets. The Steelers already have Pat Fryermuth, who is a top 10 tight end in the league, and now they pair him with an unbelievable specimen at tight end who blocks, who can catch the ball, who runs after the catch. The guy averaged over 17 yards a catch at Georgia last season, and he's 6'7", 270. And what that means is he's, he's damn hard to get onto the ground. So I think the Steelers just got a lot more flexible and diverse on offense and are going to be able to create some really, really interesting matchup problems for opposing defenses. And so I think Washington would have been a great fit in a lot of places, but the way that he's going to work in Pittsburgh's scheme, I think makes him ideal. All right, man, it was fun. I loved the last week or so just digging into the draft, watching the draft, seeing young men achieve their dreams. Just it's a beautiful thing to witness and it's a lot of fun to talk about. So I appreciate everybody who tuned in. And so next week we're going to get back into a little bit more of some of the coaching stuff. We'll have another guest on next week. We're going to start talk a little bit more about scheme in the second half of the show. So you football nerds like me who really love to get into the X and O's great for all of us to have those conversations. So I look forward to talking with you. That's it, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate all of you. Have a great week. Oh, how-